the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your sovereignty and your grace and that you have worked through the many men and women, some of which have just stood up, so that we could live in a country where we have a freedom of religion, where we could worship here this morning without any fear of repercussions from the government or the police. And Father, we understand that even in the midst of those freedoms, there are many things in our lives that are hard to accept. There are difficulties, there are trials, there are uh, areas of our lives that we feel like we've been cheated, we've been undermined. And Father, as we continue looking at First Peter 5, may you teach us a humble acceptance in your sovereignty and in your grace of these circumstances. I pray that you would be with both listener and preacher this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the simple facts of life that we all understand as adults is that of acceptance. Acceptance of your circumstances and the facts of your life, the facts of your very being. Aspects which we don't even think about that I think for most of us we don't really fight to accept, we just know it's true. Like the color of your eyes, the color of your skin, your ethnicity, your gender. But there's also an acceptance that you don't always get what you want. We understand this as adults. I have this conversation often with my three-year-old who is bewildered that because he wants it, and he says, but I want it, that we don't give it to him. Like it just doesn't compute. How in the world? But I want it. No, we're about to have dinner. You're not going to have chocolate, right? but I want it. Like, how does that? But as adults, we get it. We don't get everything that we want. We can uh, watch TV. We can read the news. We can hear about all these successful, wealthy people, people who are healthier than we are, and we can be fine with that and not say, man, I'm so discontent. We get that. There is also sometimes, I think more for those of us who are in our 30s and 40s and 50s, there's a hard acceptance of that you are exactly the age that you are. You cannot change the day you were born. That, that, that doesn't change, and we accept that. These seem like simple, unalterable facts. Nothing will change these things. And yet we live in a world where despite the objective truth of the matter at hand, you are told you can change. You can get what you want. You can get contacts to change the color of your eyes. You can change the color of your skin. You can even change your gender these days. You can lie about your age. You can seek physical change through cosmetic surgery, exercise. You can fight for what you think you deserve and get whatever your heart desires. And when you take something that seems so set in stone like your gender, a cold, hard fact, fact, and make that subjective, then you can see the problems that our society has. The lines of objectivity are blurred. And the more we blur the lines, the more we convince ourselves that we are in control, we get what we want. 
Then, this mentality bleeds into the desire to change our circumstances, even if it means denying God's revealed will in His Word for us. So much so that when we can't be in control, we get upset, we fight, we lash out, we put down others, we lose sleep over what we want. In other words, we struggle with pride and anxiety. And if we feel this way, imagine how the early Christians felt in the midst of persecution. And finding his beloved in a position that they cannot change, Peter writes to them. But he doesn't stroke their egos. He doesn't tell them they deserve better. He doesn't say it's okay to be frustrated because he would be frustrated too. No, he tells them, trust and obey. He tells them to humble themselves, to trust the Lord, to stop worrying. Let me read for you verses 6 and 7 of 1 Peter chapter 5, our text for the morning. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. This morning, I want to give you as our outline five components of humble acceptance. Acceptance of your circumstances, acceptance of who you are. Five components of humble acceptance. The first of which is the powerful reminder. The powerful reminder. And we see that in verse 6 in one word, therefore. Because the therefore connects the flow of thought to what he's about to say. It gives us a, f- a powerful reminder, a foundation of what he's about to explain. And this is so important because I think sometimes uh, when we do, uh, when I do expository preach and go verse by verse, we can lose the forest for the trees. You know what I mean? We get into the particulars of one verse and forget this is one continuous thought. This is one continuous letter. And so let's go back. The context is in the end of verse 5, which we saw last week, and where Peter quotes Proverbs 3.34, which says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. By way of reminder, Proverbs 3, especially from verse 21 forward, is a father a father giving advice to a son, and he addresses God-fearing living by contrasting God's treatment of the wicked with his treatment of the righteous. And you see this right here. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Wicked versus righteous. And this particular verse serves as a powerful warning to the proud, for God opposes him. And I think we would all agree the last person you would want to face opposition from is God, very God. And the beauty of this promise is not merely a removal of his displeasure for the humble. He goes a large step further and says, grace, I bless the humble. I give grace to the humble. And so since this is true, this powerful reminder Peter says we must humble ourselves before God, and that leads us to our second component of humble acceptance, the practical response. Therefore, do this, he says. The practical response I find in the phrase, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Since God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, do yourselves a favor and humble yourselves before him. 
there's an urgency in the humbling that is seen in the tense of the Greek word, which also refers to a specific act. See, this isn't just like, oh yeah, humble, yeah, I know, humble myself, let's just do this general and this kind of this kind of ethereal concept where we don't really know how to, how to do anything about it. No, this is, this is a call to do what is necessary, specific acts, slay sin, repent of sin, get rid of relationships, whatever it may be, to accept your position before God. In other words, in order to truly accept your circumstances in life, you must humbly accept that your relationship with God as His creation demands that you submit to His sovereignty. I'll say that again. In order to truly accept your circumstances in life, you must humbly accept that your relationship with God as His creation demands that you submit to His sovereignty. And whether you accept it or not, He is sovereign and His hand is mighty. Nothing will change that. We, we understand that. This is a characteristic of God. In other words, if he ceases to be sovereign, if he ceases to be mighty and powerful, he is no longer the God of the Bible. Nothing's going to change that. What will change is our outlook on life and the ease with which we live. Because if you fight it, if you fight the sovereignty and power of God, life's going to be tough. You will be discontent, you will be anxious. You'll be fighting pride. But if you accept it, you'll receive grace, blessing, and joy. And not only that, the church and all whom you interact with will be better off for it. Further back in the context in the beginning of verse 5, we are told to exhibit humility toward one another. And the foundation of this mutual submission to one another is a submission first and foremost to God. It's an understanding of your status before Him as the created, which includes a recognition that your circumstances have been sovereignly ordained by Him. You know what one of the most abused verses in Scripture is, is taken out of context? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? I've joked several times, it's a Christian athlete's favorite verse. They put it on their shoes, they put it on their faces. But taken out of context, it's not, it's not talking about sports. If you look at the context, what Paul is talking about is he said, I've learned to live with much and I've learned to live with want talking about being able to eat and not being able to eat. He's talking about being content in circumstances. And it is through Christ who strengthens me that I can be content in all circumstances. And this is what it's talking about here, Peter. Is if you trust in God, if you trust in Christ, not in your circumstances, not in your education, not in your pedigree, but in God, then you will be content in all circumstances. And when you are content... There's no infighting. There's no putting other people down. There's no jealousy. There's no pride. And there is a humility toward one another because you understand, hey, I want this person to act this way, but guess what? That's just how they are, and I don't get them. That's okay because God is sovereign, and I'm going to be content. You don't like his personality. You don't like how he jokes. You don't like whatever it may be. 
But you know what? If you humble yourself towards one another and just trust the Lord and be content with the relationships you have, the job you have, the car you have, the house, the apartment, and all that stuff, your ethnicity, your gender, your age, then you'll be okay. You'll be okay. Again, it's an understanding that your sovereign, loving God has orchestrated your circumstances. And humility will not naturally happen. And thus Peter is commanding us, humble yourselves. In the Christian context, this means a willingness to do what God desires at the cost of your own selfish desires and comfort. It's very simple. It's doing what God wants instead of what you selfishly want. And I'm very careful to not say that humility is doing what God wants instead of what you want because the goal is that we live holy enough that what God wants is what we want. That's the goal, right? So what, what is humility? It's doing what God wants over what you selfishly want to do. And that may be something that's a norm. That may be, you know, to, it may be giving up something that everyone in this culture outside the church says that's okay. It's okay to be comfortable. It's okay to want that. It's okay to drive that car. But that's not necessarily right. It's not necessarily wrong. But we have to understand that the, that the desire to, to do certain things or have certain things has to be seen through the lens of God's will. Yes, He wants you to rest. Yes, He wants to have joy. Wants you to have joy, rather. But we have to understand what that means. Not at the sacrifice of neglecting our family or neglecting our jobs or neglecting evangelism or whatever it may be. Micah 6.8 says the same thing. Let me read it for you. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And it all starts there, walking humbly with God. This is difficult. This can be challenging because it, it really makes us refocus everything in life, our whole perspective. But the object of our humility is helpful in this endeavor. endeavor and Peter writes it right there. Who or what are we to humble ourselves? Under the mighty hand of God. It's a simple reminder of who God is. He is powerful. But this isn't supposed to scare us. The mighty hand of God, how dare you? This is an encouragement. It's supposed to comfort us. Remember the wider context. Peter is writing to Christians who are suffering. Peter is writing to Christians who are being beaten, who are bleeding, literally, for their faith. And what Peter is telling us is that in the midst of persecution and difficulties, we must humbly accept God's powerful control and purposes. Don't worry Yes, that guy seems very strong and mighty, that Roman guard who's beating you. But God is mightier. God is in control. And you remember all the other contexts, right? That we are still to obey, that we're to glorify God through all this, that we're to trust God to see us through and to give us glory in the future when He comes again. Because we understand God's sovereignty. It is a completely vain endeavor to fight and struggle against God's plan. You're just going to get exhausted. You're going to get frustrated. God will do what He wants to do. That's the very definition of who He is. And if you do not yield voluntarily, then you will be forced into submission. 
because you're not going to change him. And eventually your circumstances will change you. This is true of the believer in this life. This is definitely true of the unbeliever who will one day yield in his very presence. In other words, humble yourself or be humbled. And I want to remind you that what the original readers of this letter were enduring was serious stuff. It wasn't subjective hardship. You know what I mean by that? Like, we undergo difficulties and other people will say like, no, you're, you're actually doing really well, but we feel like we're not doing well, right? I think in our day and age and in this place, it's usually about finances. That's subjective hardship, right? Like not getting the job you want, not having enough money to live how you think you deserve to live. No, they, this was a true objective hardship. They were being beaten up for their faith. And you can see why in that situation it would be so good and comforting and refreshing to be reminded of God's mighty hand, which in the Old Testament, that phrase God's mighty hand, speaks of God's power to intervene in history for the sake of His people. In other words, in the midst of trials, you can trust the power of God, which may allow for that trial, but will protect you and will bring you safely through that trial or not. Perhaps the end of that trial will be your death. And even if you die because of it, you know that it was completely in God's control and within His plan. A great example, speaking of the Old Testament, of both sides of the coin, is God's mighty hand that delivered Israel from the horrific life of slavery in Egypt intervening in a miraculous way, right, to get Pharaoh to change his mind. But it was that same mighty hand that led them to a very hard existence, wandering in circles in a desert for decades. And it was that same mighty hand that eventually led them to the promised land. God is sovereign. And we know from what we've learned in First Peter that God's goal is never simply to humble, right? That's not the end goal. Just be humble. There's always an end goal, be it spiritual growth, a greater good as a result of, of, uh, of your trial, or some sort of glory. And here it is no different, and we see this in our third component of humble acceptance, the providential resolution. The providential resolution. In verse 6, It says, why do this? Why humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God? That He may exalt you at the proper time. That, the word that, indicates a purpose. It's a purpose clause. Why humble yourselves? So that because He may exalt you at the proper time. It's a purpose. It tells us the purpose for humbling ourselves. Humility leads to exaltation. And this is a common theme in the Scriptures. But don't be misled by the English. Exalt literally means to lift up out of something. And remember the context. See, God is not promising that if we humble ourselves, then we will get some sort of earthly glory. We will get the raise. We will get the money, the house, the promotion. The context is speaking of accepting your difficulties, your trials, specifically your persecution, 
as ordained by God and for your good. And when he sees the time as right, he will take you out of the trial. At the proper time, his proper time. The proper time is not your time. It's not when you think you've had enough or when you, don't, when you think you can't handle anymore. The proper time is God's time. The proper time is God's perfect and perfectly wise appointed time. We may want it now. I know you want it now. I want it now. We all want it now. But his timing may say, wait. His timing is perfect. James 4.10 says the same thing. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. And regardless of what the difficulty is, God's timing will pull you out of the trial, either through a reversal of difficulties, a triumph over your persecutors, or a participation in divine glory, which is just a theologically accurate way of saying you will die, which is a very real possibility. Because let's face it, some of your trials are cancer or sickness. Some of the Christians in other countries, their trial is awaiting martyrdom, imprisonment. But in God's perfect timing and in God's perfect way, you will be lifted up out of that trial. Peter goes on and gives us a fourth component of humble acceptance, the proper reliance the proper reliance, into verse 7, he says, casting all your anxiety on him. This is a, a continuation of what he just said. This is how to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. We know that anxiety and worry are sins. And here we are given some insight into why. Peter is directly connecting anxiety with pride. There's a grammatical connection in the way he writes, but there's a logical connection as well of why giving in to worry or giving in to anxiety is an example of pride. And I'd like to give you a few primary reasons this is true. This is not an exhaustive list. And maybe you struggle with anxiety and you think, well, I don't do some of these things. But these tend to be true of anxiety and worry and explains why they are sin against God. The first is that anxiety is a need for control. Anxiety is a need for control. We get anxious because we don't know the future. We get anxious because people are not doing what we want them to do. We get concerned when things don't go our way or we think things won't go our way. Right? Rather than trusting God for His control, we need to be in control. And so even if it's a very good possibility that things will go your way, the fear of the unknown makes us anxious. It's pride because we're so focused on everything happening the way we want it to happen so that we can do what we want, so people will do what we want. Whether that's our circumstances or others doing what we tell them to do, it is pride because it's focused on self. The connection of, to humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God is very clear. Things will go your way if they happen to be what God wants. If what you want also is what God has planned, they will go your way. And so we humble ourselves. We trust the Lord. 
If not, then humbly accept at least that you are not in control of your circumstances. God is. So anxiety, firstly, is sin because it's a need for control. Secondly, very, and there, these are all going to be connected. Secondly, anxiety is a lack of faith that God will provide our needs. Anxiety is a lack of faith that God will provide our needs at the very most basic level. This is what anxiety is about, and this is the anxiety that Jesus confronts in Matthew chapter 6, if you turn there with me. Matthew chapter 6, verses 26 through 34, addresses anxiety. And although he talks about the essentials like food and clothing, this can apply to any sort of anxiety. We just need to be careful uh, with the difference between actual needs, like I need this, if I don't have this, I will die, food, air, shelter, clothing, right, versus felt needs, which sometimes we think if I don't have this phone, I will die. If I don't have this car, I will die, but you know you won't. Matthew 6, verses 26 through 34. He reminds his listeners, Jesus Christ, look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns like we do, he's basically saying. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worthy, excuse me, are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to this life? By worrying, you don't extend your life. If anything, you shorten it. Verse 28, And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not even toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, in other words, it's easily expendable, Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing, or where will I work, or where will I live, or how will I pay the rent? I added that. Verse 32, for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness And all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Anxiety is a lack of faith that God will provide for your needs. A third way that anxiety and worry is sin is anxiety is a lack of faith that when God that what God does give, it's a lack of faith that what God gives is enough and is for our best. What we do have, what we know is from God, we'll thank God for it. We don't really think it's enough. We don't think it's for our best. Romans 8.28, many of you know it. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And again, I don't think as much as Philippians 2.24, but this is misused because we forget to remember that the good that all things that God causes to work together for is good in His mind, which is perfect. Not what we think is good, not what society thinks is good, not even what our spouse thinks is good, 
Definitely not what our kids think is good. Chocolate for breakfast. But what God thinks is good. And, and, you know, even if he only saw from our perspective within the space-time continuum, which he doesn't, he's outside of it, we have a trouble looking past today because we get so anxious about things. He can see the future. He knows the future. He controls the future. He knows when you're going to die. He knows everything. He's in control of it. And He knows what you need. He knows what is for your best. And by the way, what He is most concerned about is not your happiness. It is your joy which is connected to holiness. What he is most concerned about because he loves you with a love that we cannot even comprehend is first and foremost his relationship with you and your relationship with him. And if that means you go through unhappy, sad circumstances, if that means you don't get what you want, if that means that you go through physical pain and even martyrdom, he is doing what is best for you working all things together for your good. So anxiety is a lack of faith that what God gives is enough and is for our best. Fourthly, anxiety believes you must solve all your problems through your own strength. Anxiety believes you must solve all your problems through your own strength. Again, this denies God's sovereignty It shows a lack of trust in His love, His faithfulness, His power, and His wisdom. And so what do we do? If anxiety is so sinful and if anxiety reveals a lack of faith in our heart, what do we do? Peter says, rather than be anxious, cast, literally throw like you would throw a a saddle onto a horse. Throw onto him, just toss it onto him, all your cares and concerns of this life and the next. By the way, does anyone doubt when you die or, or if you are raptured up that, well, you know, he makes these promises, but what if heaven's not all it's cracked up to be? What if my mansion in glory has a leak in the roof? I don't think anyone thinks that. And if you think he can handle your eternity, you're not anxious about eternity. You're not anxious that that he might get your reward wrong and give it to someone else. You'll be out of tune in the heavenly chorus or whatever. No one thinks these things. How is it if he can control your eternity that he can't control your job, your singleness, your infertility? And again, the context is intense suffering for one's faith. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to belittle the things that make us anxious. These are real things. But could you imagine someone today, a Christian today, having a conversation with these early Christians asking for prayer and comparing our anxieties? Could, could you pray for me, brother? I'm a new Christian and my husband has beaten me because of my faith once until I was unconscious because I refuse to go back to the rituals at the temple of Artemis. Oh, I hear you, sister. My husband booked a family vacation without even asking me where I want to go. I get so anxious that he's going to control our marriage without asking my opinion, so pray for me. 
It's silly. It's crazy. Hey, sister, can you pray for me? You know, I'm a slave and I have no other choice to, but to remain a slave because there will be a few more years before I pay off my debt. And because of my faith, my owner has repeatedly raped me and threatened to kill my children. And every time he walks by our shack, I get anxious that he's going to come and I really don't have the financial means to free myself. Oh, I get it. I'm anxious too. You know, because uh, my wife and I, we really don't see how we can afford a down payment on a house. So uh, we're stuck in this one-bedroom apartment. Same, same, same thing. You know, after I became a Christian, everyone stopped buying my goods at the local market stall. And then when I tried to get some of my neighbors to buy some of my pottery, the soldiers came and destroyed my tables and everything I have. My children and I haven't eaten in days. Oh, oh, I hear you. I gotta, I'm anxious too. I got a prayer request too, you know. Uh, my job in this country, which guarantees freedom of religion and it's illegal to fire someone for their religion, uh, my coworkers are kind of rude to me because uh, they found out I'm a Christian. I think. Again, I, I don't mean to belittle your anxieties. Well, maybe a little. But they're, they're silly, so much of what we're anxious about when you look at the context of what these early Christians were going through. But here's the point. Do you really think that these early Christians in fear of death because of their commitment to Christ, could humble themselves, trust God, and cast their anxieties on Him, and we can't? You live in the San Francisco Bay Area. You are anxious about what you don't have when you have more than 98% of not the rest of the world, the rest of the United States of America. You see, the problem is that so many of our anxieties are not about true persecutions or things that are out of our control, but feeding our selfish wants, feeding our egos. Now, I want to make it clear that this is not a call to self-abandonment or resignation. Just trust the Lord. He'll provide. We are to do our jobs. We are to work well. We are, you, you need to be the, the best employee in your office because you're working for God, not for your boss or your paycheck. We still need to be good stewards with our money, with our finances, with our resources, with house hunting, job hunting, taking care of our families, all of those things. But we have to have an expression living out of self-humbling by trusting God. And this leads to our final component of humble acceptance, the paramount reason, because He cares for you. Because He cares for you. I don't care if you work for your spouse. God cares more about your job and your finances than your boss does. God cares more about your health than your doctor and your family do. He cares for you. And sometimes that care in His sovereignty is translated in our experience, worldly experience, into something that doesn't look like care. But He cares. He cares. 
And it's not a removal of his care that persecution comes. It is because of his care. Because he wants to grow you, perfect you, maybe even bring you to glory earlier than you want. And this is the basis of our confidence, his care. Trust the amazing combination of God's sovereignty and God's goodness in your life. You know, this is why uh, Christians have called anxiety practical atheism. Because when you're anxious, you are denying God's care. You're denying God's power. You're denying God's sovereignty. You're, you're denying that He is involved in your life. It's not true atheism in that you deny there is a God. You believe in a God. You just, just The way you live, it denies everything you would confess about Him. Remember that He cares for you. And this is so important. In everything we do, it's important to remember why we do things, who it is that we serve. We don't want to just be in a situation where we become legalists and to try all my might, cast my anxieties, cast my burdens on the Lord. I'm going to stop being proud. You have to have that motivation of wanting to glorify God and you want to glorify God because you recognize who He is. Not just what He has done for you, which is very important, but who He is. Because who He is results in why and what He has done for you. Right? Everything He has done for us, all the blessings, Jesus on the cross, all of that is because of who He is. Love, mercy, compassionate, grace, wrath. And so as we look at your lives, whether it's your job, whether it's your uh, frustration with your physical ability, whatever it is, remember these five components of humble acceptance. And I, look, I understand that anxiety is hard. And I, I understand that, and I hope you understand that how a preacher preaches is very often different than how a preacher counsels. In other words, if you're struggling with anxiety and you come to my office, which is whatever Starbucks is closest to you, <laughs> I'm not just going to beat you over the head and say, you arrogant, proud person. I get it. A lot of you are struggling. Some of you are taking medication for anxiety. I get it. But I hope that these five components of humble acceptance will help you in that. The powerful reminder, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Secondly, the practical response, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Thirdly, the providential resolution, He will take you out of the trial in His perfect timing. Fourthly, the proper reliance, Throw all of your burdens on his back. And fifthly, the paramount reason, remember that he cares for you. I'm reminded of a true story of someone who really struggled with anxiety on a particular subject to the point that he was angry. But he ended up trusting God, humbling himself, and obeying. It was a few months after he had joined a church. Him and his wife had just moved there, and so it was their first week, new church, new house, new city. And after a few months, he approached the pastor, and he, got, he said, i got to tell you something. A few months ago, we came here for the first time, and it was the Sunday that you preached that all believers must tithe 10%. Side note. You know, I've taught you that's not biblical, but that's beside the point. 
The pastor preached that they had to tithe 10%. And this was just when this couple had moved and they realized that their expenses were much, much more than their salary on a monthly basis. On the way home from church, the husband literally turned to his wife. He's telling the pastor this. He said, that pastor's an idiot. Nevertheless, they were convicted, and that night they knelt in front of the couch that they didn't even fully own and said, we're going to commit 10% to the church. He trusted the Lord and provided. That was a few months ago, and he said, the Lord did see us through. I just received a bonus at my work, and I would like to give you, and he held it in his hand, I would like to give you personally because I wanted to share you this story and tell you that I've repented of that anger. And I want to give you a tithe of 10% of that bonus. That 10% bonus was $321,000. He handed a check to the pastor. He trusted the Lord in a financially difficult time. He humbled himself, and the Lord brought him out. Can I tell you another story of someone who trusted the Lord cast her anxieties on the back of the Lord. This time it was actually just a teenager who trusted the Lord in a difficult time. Her difficult time was shorter. It lasted just a few hours. It was a difficult day, also a true story. It was April 20th, 1999, in a public high school in a city in Colorado by the name of Columbine. Two boys had already shot or killed several students, and after the massacre... Investigators determined that the killers were targeting Christians. One of the boys put his gun to the head of a girl named Cassie Bernal just a few minutes into her trial. He asked, do you believe in God? I don't know what was going through Cassie's mind at that moment. Anxiety, worry, tempted to deny, deny Christ to save her life, to lie just once and to ask for forgiveness later, but she didn't. She humbled herself before the mighty hand of God and said yes, and the killer pulled the trigger. And as horrible as that sounds, she is now in glory with her Savior. I tell you that story because you have to understand that God's perfect timing for one man may be a bonus of $3 million. And God's perfect timing in blessing you for honoring Him through humility may be a mere half a second than the life of a girl we would all say too soon. Do you trust the Lord for your anxieties, for your needs, for your circumstances, for your life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as hard as it may seem, we are so thankful that Cassie and these other early church believers that we've read about that Peter wrote to that we don't even know about. We don't even know their names are with you now.
thousands of Christians, even in our lifetime, with you and glory now because of their faith. Others repenting of their anxiety, trusting you, and you have given them life on this earth for decades to come. In all of it, Lord, we look not to trying to time our lives, but we look to you as our gracious, loving God. The truth and the promise that you work all things together for our good because we love you. May the reality of what that means just bulldoze our anxieties away. May we trust in your goodness. May we trust in your mighty hand. May you help us to humble ourselves. Whether it's anxiety that's fleshed out in the fear of man or working too hard because we want more money, fear of whatever it may be, may you help us, Lord. For those in this room who now or in the future are or will struggle with debilitating anxiety, so much so that they can't get through the day, may you just help them. Help them to see the truth. Help them to trust in you. Help them to seek godly counsel, to seek your word, to pray to your spirit, rather than seeking worldly wisdom. And then for them... And for the rest of us, may you guard us. May you guard us from buying into the lies of the world that feed anxiety, that feed our egos. May we be the kind of people who trust fully in you. Not trust in our salvation, but trust ourselves for other things, but trust fully in you for all things. And in light of that, and because of that, become faithful, hardworking stewards of all you've given us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.